welcome to Brainwaves Bistro. Grab yourselves a cuppa, kick back, and join us for mental health talk with a positive vibe. Here's Julianne. Well, hello. Dr. Deepa Mahandana is here to tell us how what we eat can optimize our health. She will discuss chronic disease management and how to eat to energize our brain and enhance our lives with a positive vibe. Also, Dr. Deepa, which she likes to be called, is passionate about using low-carb hydrate, uh, high-carbohydrates uh, eating to facilitate a healthy lifestyle. She is currently leading an educational network for low-carb practicing GPs in Sydney, Australia, and credentialed with the American Nutrition Association and a member of the Low Carb Down Under website. Welcome, Dr. Deepa, and our co-host, Julianne. Hi there, Bob. Hi, Dr. Deepa. Um, I am going to start with something that really changed my life, Dr. Deepa, thanks to you. I was, like many people, uh, they don't know it, suffering from a chronic fungal infection throughout my body. And the symptoms, I had it for three years. And the symptoms were such that I was fatigued, I was putting on weight, I was craving sugar, anything. And, uh, yeah, life was uh, not as good as it is now. And someone said, call Dr. Deeper. So I did, and in one week, with tweaking what I was eating, I was back to my laughing healthy self again. So thank you very, very much for that. But I must tell everybody, it's very important. If you have any qualms or any issues, please seek advice from your medical practitioner first. And Dr. Deepa, where would you like to start? You've got so much information for us. Hi, Julian and Barb. Thank you for the opportunity to be on this uh, really special um, talk about how nutrition can influence our health and particularly our brain health. Um, I guess maybe the best place to start is that in general the landscape is that we follow the dietary guidelines and that's been, been the way it has been for nearly 50 to 60 years in Australia and also in America as well. So it's one of these cases of there's quite a lot of scientific advancement that's occurred within the last 50 to 60 years. So many people often come in to see me and they tell me that they've been eating really well in a healthy pattern of eating and that's usually because they've been told how to eat as per the guideline which usually involves something like six, seven to nine serves of grains per day, a reduction in total fat consumption of all fats uh, without any nuance at looking at the different types of fats that have been reduced in the diet. And with protein intake, many people are consuming lower and lower protein uh, just because it, it for, for in some cases it's financial, accessibility, uh, not understanding the importance of the net requirement for protein, or if they are consuming protein, it's protein that has been, um, uh, it's actually based in soy or pea protein or even other uh, forms of plant-based protein rather than animal-based animal protein, which actually have higher nutrient density. So 
there's been a lot of confusion, I think, as time has gone on whilst these dietary guidelines have been in play because what we know from the emerging evidence and then also the very strong evidence as well around uh, how the macronutrients in our diet, which are the carbohydrates, the protein and the fats, and how they affect our body's hormones and how important that is to the way our body functions. Because we know so much information about that today, it really is surprising and, uh, you know, of great frustration to health professionals like myself that the dietary guidelines aren't changing to reflect this evidence and this information. And it's leaving us all in a state of uh, difficulty because we'll often see people who rightfully think that they're eating in a way that's actually good for the health, but all they can see is that they are developing one disease or disorder after another. And they might even actually see these diseases or disorders as separate from one another, different silos. And it comes back to the fact that there is sometimes an underlying opportunity here and that is to really affect it by the way we eat i think that's that sums it up too and there's so many it gets confusing we we sold so many different them this diet uh legend free this it is confusing but you're you talk a lot about carbs and sugar i remember this when we spoke how in one, four carbs, four carbs, you've got one teaspoon of sugar. Is that, that's four grams per hundred. Could you explain that? Because that blew me away. Sure. I think it's a really important concept to understand. So when you're looking at a nutritional panel and they list total carbohydrates, this is the row we always tell people to look at first because if a product has four grams of carbohydrate per 100 grams of that product, then what that is meaning is that it has at least uh, one teaspoon of sugar in it because carbohydrate can only be used in your body as chains of glucose. It's basically chains of glucose holding hands. That's how we form a carbohydrate. And the body really doesn't, see any difference between things that are sweet carbs versus things that are savoury carbs, it still needs to be broken down into these glucose molecules in our bloodstream. So the basic principle is that if you have anything that is four grams of carbohydrate, that equals one teaspoon of sugar in your blood uh, bloodstream. And at any one time, you can only hold one teaspoon of sugar, one to one and a half teaspoons, if you're being generous, in your bloodstream without prompting a major response from the pancreas. And what the pancreas produces is a hormone called insulin. And insulin's a powerful hormone. We all require it to be able to get glucose to move from outside of the cell. So either it's in the interstitial or the tissue area, or it could be in our bloodstream, but trying to move it inside of cells requires insulin. And Glucose does need to go into cells because then it helps in terms of uh, cellular function. So when we have more than one to one and a half teaspoons of sugar in our bloodstream, you actually need to produce higher amounts of insulin to get rid of 
the sugar from the bloodstream where it can be toxic when it's in higher than that one and one to one and a half teaspoons. And that higher insulin production is what actually underlies a lot of the metabolic changes we see in the setting of metabolic syndrome um, in things like mental health disorders um, and also in diabetes as well. We often see the overlap between all of these disorders is insulin resistance. So that's why it's so important to remember that when you're looking at foods, really we should be checking the carbohydrate content first and foremost because there's often quite a high carbohydrate content in many packaged and processed foods. Yeah, that's that blew me away. I now I'm, I have to get uh, sometimes on the packages I have to almost have a little magnifying glass that's so small, but I take it with me. I've got one in my handbag uh, because it's so important to understand. And and is it you? You don't want more than thirty grams per day. Per is that right? Is that, so there's different. Yeah, there's different types of. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this it's a full. It's a quite a wide spectrum in which people can eat. So a common misconception is that people think a low-carb way of eating needs to be a certain number of carbohydrates, but it has to be quite individual to the person. So I'll just give an example. If somebody has quite severe insulin resistance, meaning that they probably already have type 2 diabetes um, and they may be taking medications to manage their blood sugar because their pancreas underproduces insulin and it's really not enough, but it's not at the point where they have complete pancreas exhaustion, which is where you're entering type 1 diabetes. So say if you're in that zone in between the two, that's probably the the setting at which a very, very low-carbohydrate dietary approach can actually be incredibly beneficial because it will mean less reliance on medication and better control of blood sugar levels as well as improved health overall. So something like less than 20 grams of carbohydrate makes a lot of sense in that situation. Okay, Okay. that's interesting, very interesting. And at the same token, if someone is actually doesn't have any insulin resistance but wants to use a low-carb way of eating to assist assist them with a different uh, illness or or they just want to optimise their health, they may also choose to sit at a very low-carb intake, so they may be under 20 to 30 grams of carbohydrate per day to pro- in order to be able to signal to their body to produce ketones. And ketones are made by the liver from chains of fatty acids that either come from the fat that we eat or it's the fat that is released from our um, own fat stores. So that those those ketones actually have their own independent properties, which people might also be using as a way of uh, treating a disease or another illness process. So it has to be very tailored to, you know, what is your individual goal? What are your health issues? Uh, what is also most sustainable for you in the long term? Because there isn't oh, yes. any point in giving somebody a way of eating that they can't maintain and keep consistent with. But some of the things I learned too um Carbohydrates, the best you told me, were plants and vegetables that were above ground, not underground. Is that right? Or am I remembering this right? 
So yes, I was yes. always eating sweet potato was the geo. I loved it. But you said, no, no, it's got uh, starch in it. And you'd like to continue on with that, Dr. Deepa. I'm bumbling around, but you know your stuff. No, that's okay. So then you're very, very right there. So it's the vegetables that are above the ground that you could eat almost to your heart's content uh, because they have very little carbohydrate within them. So these are ve- vegetables like beans, cauliflower, capsicum, uh, all the green leafy vegetables such as spinach and bok choy. And I mean, there's, there's many vegetables that will fall under the category category of being very low carb and sometimes to people who are quite new to this way of eating they're not they don't realize that vegetables are carbohydrates so that is a very big first step to learn about and then when we talk about vegetables that occur below the ground they tend to store the starch in quite high concentrations so they end up even though they're quite their savory foods in our body we can only process them as chains of glucose so unfortunately you know things like potatoes are quite high and so for people who do have a level of insulin resistance where they have to signal a very low carb intake in order to manage that they do need to uh, keep that intake of those below ground vegetables to a minimum or even in the beginning perhaps to not eat those vegetables until they can get to a point where they've repaired some of the issues they already had with the insulin resistance which is possible to do. And you can measure this, uh, you did with me, with um, blood tests too and you were able Mm. to tell me uh, individualise for my chronic issue, what to consume and how to do it. And you've got a fantastic dietitian there who also helps. So thank you for that. Um, what I was going to ask also, which you described to me how we metabolise, it's alcohol first, isn't it? And this is mm. how we actually end up carrying weight. Would you like to explain uh how alcohol and then fats and protein, how the digestion and therefore the glucose levels and fat are stored. Yeah. So, uh, for in, so with the, the issue with alcohol, so in this process of wanting to minimise your blood sugar overall and not have many big highs with blood sugar, what we're wanting to really do is – to ensure that you can as much as possible use your fat for fuel. So you're kind of moving from being what we call a sugar burner to being a fat burner most of the time. And, in fact, we're all born as fat burners. So we're all born in a level of what we call is nutritional ketosis. And infants are in nutritional ketosis when they are exclusively breastfed because breast milk itself is 70% fat. So it is it is quite a fatty um, food and does keep the baby in, a, in and out of nutritional ketosis between feeds. So the issue with alcohol, and this is really um, uh, uh, maybe a pitfall, I think, is people who do go lower carb sometimes report that they're not gaining the health improvements that they thought would arise from that. 
And then upon further questioning, they might actually still be consuming alcohol. And the problem with alcohol is that when it enters the body, the body sees it as a toxin. There is no nutritional value to the alcohol itself. So the liver actually has to put on pause all of the other metabolic pathways that it has functioning at the time in order to to detoxify the alcohol. So it has to process that through. It uses several enzymes. There are some key ones that are used in that process. But in that one hour to process a standard drink, as many people know about when it comes to driving, in that time frame, however long it takes you to process what alcohol you've used, you've actually put on pause ketosis. You've put on pause that ability to to make ketones and to burn either the fat you're eating or the fat that's stored on you for fuel. So you've actually gone from then switching yourself from being a fat burner primarily back to the sugar burner. And that's also why I think, and and I think there's multiple reasons, but one of the reasons people get quite hungry as well when they tend to drink alcohol or when the alcohol is sort of being processed, they might actually feel like they want to eat. So this phenomenon means that alcohol does get prioritized in metabolic breakdown because we just do not need it in the body. It's considered a toxin. And then thereafter, the body has an opportunity to return to fat burning once the alcohol has been removed. Uh, But of course, if we aren't eating in a way that's giving yourself that uh, low level of signaling to your pancreas, so you don't really want to be stimulating the pancreas to make huge amounts of insulin. And the best way to eat to, to achieve that is to keep very low carbohydrates, moderate to moderate uh, amounts of protein, just enough to maintain your muscle mass unless you're wanting to be someone who's building muscle. And then with fats, either keep that as a moderate to high consumption of fats. And again, that depends on what your health goals are. So if you're looking more for a weight loss perspective, you're probably going to keep fat to a moderate amount. But if you're looking to enhance uh, neurological function, then a higher fat intake is actually more beneficial. That's really interesting, yeah, Yeah, Mm -hmm. about the neurological, because um, you referred me to a book. If we were on camera, I'd show it to you. It was brilliant. Thank you so much. A book called Brain Energy, Mm. and it is by Dr. Christopher Palmer, who's the assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard. That's quite a good school, actually. And I am reading it for the second time. It's so interesting. And it really does talk about how not only the body, but the brain, there can be, he believes, it's a theory, but it's the most comprehensive theory I have heard, that mental disorders are sourced from the way we eat. That's incredible. I mean, of course, genes are a little bit involved, but what we eat affects our mental health. Would you like to comment on that? Yeah, it's a a wonderful book, and I think he's done a great job at synthesising this hypothesis. And as you said, it is one of the most comprehensive hypotheses we have as to what's caused such a escalation, I think, in the diagnosis of mental health disorders which particularly seems to run in parallel with the industrialization of the human diet. So our nutrition changing has seemingly 
you know, quite well correlated with this rise in, in mental health issues around the world. And the idea is such that uh, we're talking about the brain is not separate from the body. Yes. And I think the pitfall of modern medicine is that we are operating in silos. So you'll see a cardiologist for a heart issue. You'll see uh, a psychiatrist if you're given a diagnosis of anxiety. You'll see a kidney physician if you've got something wrong with your urine or your kidneys. So, but those specialties, they don't tend to talk to one another. And there's also very little understanding, unfortunately, between the overlapping, uh, underlying mechanisms that might be involved that could actually affect different systems in the body mm. and come and be boiled down to the one thing. And the one thing that Dr. Chris Palmer talks about here is mitochondrial dysfunction. Oh, so yes. This is so important. Yeah. And, and you know what? We'd love you to come back and talk more on that area of the brain and mental health mm. because it's a very important thing to me. So yes. hope you'll come back and we hope we get Dr. Chris Palmer on board. But um, I want to thank you so much for coming on board with us and I think you'll help a lot of people. How do we get in touch with you? Is it just Google because it's audio? Google Sydney Carb, uh, Sydney Low Carb, is that right? The best way. Yeah, so our website, yeah, our website's www.sydneylowcarb or one word dot com dot au. Thank you. And yep. yeah, we've also got some two social media channels as well that people can access information which we share regularly about this whole field of low carb medicine. It's so interesting. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Deeper and Julianne. There's so much information. We definitely need to have you back on again. We've got um, uh, a, a time limit, unfortunately, so we'll we'll have to lock you in. And as we're talking about energy for the brain and body, it's also important to remember the continuing research of the Black Dog Institute, which needs your support to continue the groundbreaking research in brain studies and mental health and suicide prevention and for that of future generations. The Institute is the not-for-profit, so please put Black Dog Institute on your Christmas donation list and just Google Black Dog Institute. No donation is too small. So thank you both very much. Have a wonderful day and a joyful one tomorrow. Thank you.